This podcast was recorded on Thursday, March 2nd at 10.32 a.m. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Yeah, like the artist behind Dilbert will start doing the courtroom sketches for the Larry Householder trial. I bet he has some time on his hands these days. He needs the work. Let's talk politics. This is Snollygoster, WOSU Public Media's weekly look at Ohio politics and all those Snollygosters or shrewd politicians out there. I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mike Thompson. Coming up in the podcast, Larry Householder takes the stand in his bribery and racketeering trial. But first, this week we get the other side of the abortion rights amendment issue. That's right. Last week we spoke with an abortion provider from Cleveland who is leading the effort to convince voters to change the Ohio Constitution to guarantee the right to an abortion. The amendment would enshrine abortion rights in the Ohio Constitution. The state would have the ability to ban abortions after the point of viability, which is generally considered to be between 21 and 24 weeks. After that point, abortions would only be allowed if the woman's life or health is in danger. Now, we are still waiting for Attorney General Dave Yost's decision on the amendment's language. That decision is due Friday. It may have happened by the time you hear this. That's how it goes sometimes. If approved by Yost and then by the state ballot board, supporters of the amendment would have until early July to gather 414,000 verified petition signatures in order to get on this November's ballot. Joining us this week to discuss his opposition to the proposed amendment is Mike Gonadakis. He is president of the leading anti-abortion rights organization in the state, Ohio Right to Life. Mike Gonadakis, welcome to Snellygoster. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Well, this proposed amendment would essentially codify what was the Roe versus Wade decision in the Ohio Constitution. Why shouldn't Ohio do that? Well, several reasons. First being that a policy does not belong in our state constitution. Sadly, we currently have craps, blackjack, and poker in our state constitution when the out-of-state interest in the gambling world came in. And instead of working with the legislature, went uh, went straight to ballot. And now it's stuck in there. We can't change it. We can't do anything about that. And, and abortion doesn't belong in there either. It's currently not, of course. And um, and if we want to have these debates in the halls of the state house, we elect Democrats and Republicans every two years and four years in the state house and a governor. That that's where these decisions should be made, not in our state constitution. Mike, polls have consistently shown that a clear majority of Ohioans support legal abortion with restrictions, in particular the Roe decision. How optimistic are you that you can convince a majority of voters to reject this? My friend, as you said a few moments ago, we're still waiting on Ohio's attorney general, at least at this time, to determine if the language as drafted uh, meets the requirements or not. But let's just make an assumption for this podcast here that he says the thumbs up, it's good to go. Well, I can tell you what you just uh, stated is while accurate in the polling, um, that's not what their constitutional amendment says. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's deceptive and deadly. In fact, it allows for abortion on demand up to and through the ninth month, amongst other things. And that's a bridge too far for Ohioans, even pro-choice Ohioans. Now, let's let's talk about this first, this up through the ninth month. You know, 98 percent of abortions in Ohio occur before viability. There are some that occur after the we don't know exactly when, but 0.7 percent, less than 1 percent occur after the 21st week of pregnancy, according to the Ohio Department of Health using 2021 statistics. Roe has been in place because right now Roe is still in place in Ohio for 50 years. How many people have gotten abortions 
at, that late in a pregnancy for reasons other than the life and health of the woman? I'll answer that question directly with one caveat. Respectfully, uh, Roe is not the standard in Ohio right now. 20-week pain capable is the standard. Our our, our uh, heartbeat bill is in litigation right now, but uh, the standard is 20 weeks. Okay, Roe 20 is weeks. viability, yeah. which could be 24 to 25 weeks. Um, now, to answer your question directly, Mike, look, whether it's 1, 10, 5, however many it is, what Planned Parenthood wants to do is enshrine in the Constitution that on any given day in the state of Ohio, if they're successful, a woman wakes up who's eight or nine months pregnant. And if she chooses and says, hey, I just don't want to be pregnant anymore, she can have an abortion and kill an otherwise living, breathing baby. That can um, happen now, we, Mike. That can happen now. No, Under, it can't. Because no, right no, because now, the, our, the, we have the a 20 week. Day. Yeah. But after 20 weeks, the allow they allow for the health of in life of the mother. You sit on the state medical board. How many times has a physician come before the state medical board for providing an abortion that late into a pregnancy? Well, a doctor doesn't have to come before the state medical board if they perform an abortion post 20 weeks to save the life of the mother. They, it's perfectly legal, unfortunately. But you're saying you're saying that it that the the uh, the standard they're going around that that they're having an abortion on demand for for all intents and purposes convenience sake. That would go before the state medical board. How many times has that happened on your in your tenure on the board? Bill, I've been on the medical board for 11 years, and we have have not had that case because it's illegal in Ohio currently. Now, if the Planned Parenthood gets their constitutional amendment through, it will be legal and that no one would ever come before us, and a woman could just have it any day of the week. That's what I'm trying to say. That's no, how no, it would not be legal. It would not be legal. Here's how it reads. The abortion would be prohibited in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician if it is necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. It's specifically in there. So it would be illegal if the woman's health or life was not in jeopardy. An abortion after that point would be illegal. It doesn't. They could certainly have said that, Mike, but they didn't. They they don't preclude any abortions. They just say these can happen. Look, when we put something in a state statute, that's different. Courts can interpret it. We can, you know, we can massage it. There, there could be rules written by the medical board, board of pharmacy, so on and so forth. But in the Constitution, you're going to read it by the strict letter of the law. If it's not in there, then it's not applicable. That's why it's so sloppily written. Um, so you know, how, says, how should it be written? I know you you know you're on the other side, but how could yeah, it be okay. more? I'm not no, giving how, them advice on how to write how, their No, but how amendment. could it be more clear? What would satisfy you that the, what your concern is that women would have abortions in the seventh, eighth, ninth month of a pregnancy for for reasons other than to save the person's life? I mean, how could it be more clear than what they have? Well, I, I'm not going to give any pointers or tips okay. to the abortion industry, but I would say if if if, they, if their intent is to prohibit late-term abortions, except to save the uh, woman's life, then just say it. Just say that. Again, here's how it reads. The state could, may be prohibited if in the professional judgment of the pregnant patient's treating physician, it is necessary to protect the pregnant patient's life or health. So let's, we'll move on to other other issues, but that's that's basically what it reads. And Mike, Mike right. let's talk about the campaign now. You, you predict that this will be expensive and nasty. I think those were your exact words. Uh, what do you mean by that? What are you predicting? 
Well, this will be the largest grassroots advocacy organization in the state's history, but we will um, engage. We've already done it. We started many months ago, not knowing if they were going to go to ballot in 23 or 24. Um, and we have coordinators in all 88 counties. Keep in mind that our faith-based community is allowed to engage in ballot initiative, initiatives. Um, they can't say, obviously, vote for or vote against a person because of their 501c3 status, but they can get involved in issue campaigns. We have countless church, some mega churches, medium-sized, small-sized churches that are going to be 100% behind us. And no one is more motivated than us in an off-year election to ensure that this proposal from Planned Parenthood doesn't win the ballot. We have to raise tens of millions of dollars. Ohio is a expensive state with 10 media markets and to run a 30-second commercial in Cleveland is, is outrageously expensive, but it is what it is. We're not going to be out uh, outspent. Well, we're not. We won't be able to outraise Planned Parenthood. They're going to raise money from California, Hollywood to New York City. But we will raise the necessary revenue, whether that's thirty million, fifty million. I don't know. We're in the process of raising now, and things are going well. Um, but at the end of the day, we will be in all four corners of the state of Ohio with our 150 pregnancy centers, our 55 Ohio Right to Life chapters, and many more uh, to come out and defeat this initiative. Mike, this has been a uh, historically. Um... The debate on this has been has been very very tense and honestly nasty sometimes the the tone of this debate how quote nasty will the tone of this campaign be I mean will people see pictures of fetuses for instance in in your in your campaign literature or even in commercials well anyone could do anything they want our, our formal campaign will have a very pointed strategy as it relates to telling the truth to Ohioans that what happens if they vote no yes and what happens if they vote no. You know, you can't stop anyone from expressing their First Amendment rights. So if there's an individual or another group that comes in from out of state and, and you know, has campaign tactics that's different than ours, I, I can't influence that or do anything about that. And neither can Planned Parenthood, of course. So uh, free speech reigns, of course, and freedom of assembly reigns. Um, I can't predict what may or may not come. But what I do know is if telling the truth is nasty, well, then it's going to be nasty. But we will tell the truth of what would happen if abortion rights activists get what they want in our state's constitution. Um, like if this amendment passes, supporters of the amendment argue that provisions or restrictions in state law could remain. Things like waiting periods, parental consent, those mandatory transfer agreements between clinics and hospitals that we have now. Uh, do you agree that the, those restrictions would remain if it passed? Completely disagree. In fact, on your colleague Ann Fisher's show earlier in the week for which I participated in, the advocate for Planned Parenthood said that this would all be litigated in court. All the laws, all the um, administrative code rules and the medical board and board of pharmacy would end up being litigated in court um, if it's seen as, as a, um, these are my words, as a hindrance to the right of abortion. So everything's on the table, parental consent, 24-hour waiting period, health and safety standards at abortion clinics. It's on the table and it's going to go to a local judge in Cincinnati that is pro-choice and it'll be enjoined in every single one of our laws until it gets up to the Ohio Supreme court of course um so they're gonna they're trying to circumvent the legislature mike and and put uh, put all these issues in the hands of local courts in hamilton county franklin county or cuyahoga county okay well, just, uh, I'll just let me just read what exactly what it says which leads credence to what you just said the amendment reads the state may not interfere with the reproductive rights quote unless the state demonstrates that it is using the least restrictive means to advance the individual's health in accordance with widely accepted and evidence-based standards of care. So it does leave room for challenging restrictions, it appears. Yep. And then they said, and they telegraphed it the other day, as I said, on your colleague's show, and um, they're, they're going to litigate every single issue because they want abortion on demand, no limits or restrictions in Ohio. 
I don't, I don't not, think that's they, true. They could have wrote it. Yeah, but I don't, I don't think that's true. I don't think I mean, the overwhelming majority of Ohioans don't want abortion on demand with no restrictions. I, I, I know you're, you're trying to imply that this amendment says that, but um, Mike, we, we asked uh, the guest on the other side this last week. Do you think this will settle the issue? You're implying that, or you're saying outright that this amendment, if it passes, then um, restrictions on abortion would be very hard. Do you think um, whatever happens here, do you think this will settle it? If it passes, will Ohio right, um, Ohio right to life give up the fight to ban abortion? Or do you think that if it fails, will the other side give up their, or their stance? Or do you think this will settle anything? Um, I, I can only speak for Ohio right to life and we'll never rest. We'll never stop. We'll continue to advocate at the state house. We'll use the court judicial system and we'll use the ballot box, um, if we need to, uh, but we're going to be successful. But, um, I don't think, again, I don't speak for Planned Parenthood, but I don't think they're going to give up either. Um, at the end of the day, none of us are going away. We will continue to advocate for life. There's a lot of work to do. I'm personally right now working on adoption reform. I'm finding ways to help, uh, pregnant women through the legislature and, and um, children born um, with uh, uh, special needs. Uh, there's two pieces of legislation that are going through the House right now that we think have a great chance of helping common sense approach. So we'll be working on that today and moving forward. So uh, we have a battle in front of us right now, and uh, we're going to take it to the public square. And obviously, it's up to the 8 million voters in the state of Ohio what they think our Constitution should or should not say. But Lord willing, we'll be successful. Thanks to Mike Konadakis, president of Ohio Right to Life. Uh, Mike, no doubt we will talk again if this uh, campaign progresses. Yeah, thank you, gentlemen. You guys, this is a fantastic podcast. Thank you. A reminder, we spoke with Dr. Shri Thakalapati, a member of the Ohioans for Reproductive Freedom in last week's podcast. If you missed it, we encourage you to go back in our feed and listen to that. We'll be right back. This is Chip Brantley, co-host of the NPR podcast, White Lies. Before we found the man in Vancouver, before we sued the State Department, before we snuck into the graveyard of a federal penitentiary, all we had were the photographs. Photographs of a group of Cuban men standing on the roof of a prison in rural Alabama. That's this season on the NPR podcast, White Lies. Welcome back to Snally Goster from WOSU Public Media. Somebody is not telling the truth in the Larry Householder bribery and racketeering trial, or at least someone's memory. It's really filling them. Yes, one of the two. In what would have been must-see TV, if cameras were allowed in federal court, the former House Speaker took the stand this week to tell jurors he is just an underdog state lawmaker trying to do good by the people of Ohio. He did not take $61 million in money from First Energy to coordinate a scheme to have the state approve a $1.3 billion bailout for the company's two northern Ohio nuclear power plants. A householder strategist had testified the scheme was hatched at a Washington, D.C. steakhouse the weekend of Donald Trump's inauguration in early 2017. Householder said he did not go to the steakhouse, but instead went to a pizza palace with his wife. Yeah, Householder describes his interaction with First Energy executives more or less as informal meetings. Now, First Energy has pleaded guilty to bribing Householder in return for bailing out those plants. I love that Larry Householder testified. First of all, I want to say that first off. He, I love that he put his money where his mouth is. Even if you don't believe him, he is going down fighting, and he is... He did not take a plea bargain, obviously, and he did not even take the Fifth Amendment. He might take the Fifth Amendment during cross-examination. I don't no, know. No, you can't now. You can't now? Nope. That's how that works? You can't do it? No, you can't do it. You can't take the Fifth on the questions you don't like. Oh, yeah. Okay. I would do that. That would be my strategy. <laughs> um, no, that's a uh, – again, I just want to say first off, 
I love the Larry Householder show. I watch every week. If I if I could see it on TV, I would watch it in person. I, I'm here for this, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's great. I'm glad he did it. It's a classic. He said. He said, case. right, right, because these meetings that he's describing, there, there is no independent. There are no secret recordings. It's what one person says happened to the meeting versus what he says or the other or his uh, lobbyist says happened to the meeting is an example. One of Householder's top allies had testified that a first energy lobbyist handed Householder a four hundred thousand dollar check across a table at a meeting. Well, the lobbyist this week testified that someone else gave Householder the check and there was no table. It was just a set of couches. Why not pay cash if they did? Anyway. Um, but yeah, Householder, Householder is literally telling people to believe that he flew to Washington, D.C. on First Energy's private jet, but had hardly talked with the CEO. Yes. That's, I'm sure, now cross-examination is probably happening right now as we speak. It's, it's supposed to be on Thursday. So we don't know right now. But my guess is that will be a question the prosecutors ask him to say, come on now, you flew down there on the plane and you just saw him briefly at a at a party mm-hmm. and at, at breakfast and there was no discussions about anything? Yeah, he wants the jury to believe that he played no role in Generation Now, the group that funded the campaign to pass the bailout and defeat a campaign to repeal it. Yeah, he said he didn't like the name Generation Now. He, so didn't, he, did, get he, he didn't, didn't get it. He didn't like the name, so he he knew about the name. Somebody must have run it by him. It seems that way. Maybe yeah. it was after the fact. I don't know. Right, right. But yeah, it, it, <laughs> all the defense is trying to do is is plant doubt in the minds of at least one juror. Right. That's all they they don't have to prove that they don't have to prove anything. They just need to provide enough reasonable doubt in the minds of one juror, preferably more in the defense's case, that this was just hardball politics. This was just his desire to keep Ohio's Householders' desire to keep Ohio's energy market diverse and to save jobs of the folks who worked at those plants. That's his defense. He has not proven that rock solid yet. And he I, have I, to, I, I know what you're saying, and yeah. I don't think the the prosecution has either. I don't think they have. I, I, I'm not there in person. It's very hard to get a full reflection of the testimony. They're they're building a good case, and I, I you know I guess they're done at this point. They've done, they've already made their cases. The defense's turn at this point, but I, I'm not sure a conviction is happening. These, these cases are hard because nobody says, here is a bribe, because nobody would say right, that. Right, no one says the word bribe. But right. there are recordings, there are testimony, there are plea deals. There is the evidence that, that this was he got the speaker's position, passed the bailout nearly immediately. It helps the prosecution that First Energy has pleaded guilty. Yes. Very much so. Yeah, I think then you go, okay, say he is convicted, then it goes to the appeal process. And in Virginia, the governor there was convicted of getting, quote, quote, bribes or favors in return for legislation. And then the appeals court overturned it. So this is still a long ways to go. But at least it looks like the trial portion, the end is within sight. Yeah, I, I guess I would barely still lean conviction at this point. I think would be my, the way I would be leaning. The key the way, is the way I think that's going to happen. The key is using money for personal things, for his house repairs in Florida, mm-hmm. to pay off bills. He claims it was a loan, but there was no loan documents. He didn't repay the loan that we know of. That might be something that he's going to that he's going to have a hard time explaining away. We'll see. Time now for our Snollygoster of the Week segment. It's where we honor the shrewdest politician or political move of the week. We typically try to pick someone from Ohio, but this week 
we could not resist going out of state. No. Well, so we go to Georgia and Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, a fierce critic of everything President Biden does, but in particular his policies along the U.S.-Mexico border. Republicans have long argued, despite evidence to the contrary, that undocumented immigrants and migrants are responsible for bringing fentanyl into the U.S. Now, the vast majority of the illegal drug comes through regular legal border crossings in cars and trucks, and the vast majority, nearly 90% of those trafficking, are U.S. citizens. At a hearing this week, Marjorie Taylor Greene used statistics to show how the Biden administration is doing when it comes to stopping fentanyl. She compared the last year of the Trump administration to the first two years of Biden's. Now, numbers are hard on audio, but pay close attention to the numbers. Here it is. I want you to know that in 2020, there were 4.8 thousand pounds of fentanyl seized by CBP. But in 2021, fiscal year 2021, it increased to 11.2 thousand pounds of fentanyl was seized by the CBP. That is a direct result of Biden administration failure policies. Now, here we are in to date, to date, fiscal, fiscal year 2023, they have already received, or, or seized 12.5 thousand pounds of fentanyl. The Biden administration is failing this country by not protecting our border and securing our border and stopping Chinese fentanyl from being brought into our country illegally by the cartels and people are dying every single day because of it. Now, in case you missed it, in 2020, Trump's border security seized 4,800 pounds of fentanyl. Biden, in 2021, seizures more than doubled to over 11,000 pounds of fentanyl. And Biden, so far this year, seizures are close to triple what they were in Trump's final year. So by her argument, the dramatic increase in fentanyl seizures is evidence that our borders are unsecure. And Biden doing a worse job than Trump by seizing a lot more illicit drugs. Now, she would argue because Trump was tougher on undocumented immigrants than Biden, less fentanyl came across and less was seized. But again, the federal government says 87% of those arrested for trafficking in fentanyl are U.S. citizens, not asylum seekers, migrants, or undocumented immigrants. So for trying to use data to paint an inaccurate picture Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, you are our Snollygoster of the Week award winner. As divisive as she is, I think it's the first time she's won. I think so. I think so. Yeah. Congrats to her. That will do it for this week's edition of Snollygoster, which is part of the NPR Network. As always, be sure to leave us a good review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcast, and just tell your friends about us. For our student producer, Katie Genius, our audio producer, Eric French, and our digital producer, Michael DeBonis, I'm Steve Brown. And I'm Mike Thompson for Snollygoster from WOSU Public Media.